So I started looking at what are the responses of successful people? What are they doing different than other people? And I realized they weren't blaming people. They weren't complaining about the stock market. They weren't complaining about their employees. They weren't complaining about their boss. They weren't making excuses. They were 100% responsible for their success and for their failures. They own their failures. And so I started realizing that 100% responsibility is really the way to play. Welcome to the 1000 Days Sober Podcast. My name is Lee Davey. I'm not an alcoholic. I refuse to be anonymous. I am someone that doesn't drink alcohol. And I spend every waking moment of my life helping other people do the same like right now. Yeah, boy. This is probably one of the most, if not the most important podcast episodes I've ever done, right? And that's because 13 years ago, I read Alan Carr's Easy Way to Control Alcohol and Stop Drinking, okay? The second book that I picked up to read was Jack Canfield's Success Principles. This guy said to me that I can be and do anything that I want to be and do. And armed with the power of being someone who doesn't drink alcohol, I looked at my life and I thought to myself, why am I waking up in the morning and going to work in Port Talbot Steelworks for the railway when I hate it? Like I'm crying going to bed because I hate it so much. Why am I doing it? Why am I in this relationship which is not working for me and I'm unhappy? Why am I going to the pub every day? Why am I like surrounding myself with people who really don't understand who I am? Why am I living in this place that is feels like a cage that is really constraining me? Right? Why, 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 why? This guy helped me to find answers to some of those questions. This guy gave me the courage to leave my job on the railway. He had at the back of his book um, a phone number to ring if I wanted to do coaching and, and go on their Success Principles coaching course, and I did it. And um, I didn't have the money, but I put it on a credit card, felt in my gut it, it was the right thing to do, and it was. You know, like within a year, I'd paid off £30,000 worth of debt, I'd quit the railway, and I start, started traveling all around the world trying to become a professional poker player while I was building 1,000 Days Sober 13 years ago. And I get to interview the guy today. And there's a couple of things that I want to share with you before I hand you over to Jack, right? Jack Canfield, the guy I'm talking about. A couple of things I want to share with you. One, I'm going through my own journey right now. I'm doing some coaching. It's called Kaboom. Preston Smiles and Zion Kim. I cannot recommend it highly enough if you're a coach, okay? And... One of the things that I've realized, one of the limitations, one of the many limitations that I had coming into Kaboom that I'm shedding slowly, like a grasshopper sheds its exoskeleton, is I have had a nasty habit of making gods out of people, accentuated when I'm on the high stakes poker tour. When I look at high stakes poker players and I and I start to get nervous talking to them, I believe in my head that they're more intelligent than me. And then because they're more intelligent than me, that they're higher on the status hierarchy and I turn them into gods and it makes me feel really uncomfortable around them. And what Preston Smiles and Zion Kim are teaching me, Kaboom, you do not make gods out of people. And since I've been doing Kaboom, I've been thinking about this a lot and I've like drawn a line in the sand and I said, no more, you know, people are people. And just because people earn more money than you or have a different lifestyle than you doesn't mean they don't have the same problems as you. Actually, if you're a real high flyer, if you're making millions and millions of dollars, likely it is, your life is pretty fucked up because you've been ignoring all of that stuff, driving yourself to succeed. So do not make gods out of people. It was really nice to speak to Jack and not make him a god, just make him a person. And at the end of our podcast, when we were talking privately, he said to me, I really like your poker work. Jack freaking Canfield, this guy who changed my life 13 years ago, follows my poker work, and I didn't even know, you know? So that's one thing I want to share with you. Do not make gods out of people. It will slow you down. It's fixed mindset thinking, and it means that you'll be seeking external validation instead of seeking to love yourself, not seeking to love yourself and to know that you're enough right? The other thing that I wanted to talk about is when I read The Success Principles by Jack Canfield, in this book, he talks about Rich Dad, Poor Dad, Robert Kiyosaki. And after doing The Success Principles coaching and investing in that, 
I invested a significant sum of money in Robert Kiyosaki's training as well. And then after that, I stopped and I started reading and reading, reading, reading lots of self-help books. And I started to learn so much and I started to travel around the world and I was growing my company. But the one thing I've learned through Kaboom Coaching, there will never be a time in my life when I am not immersing myself with people smarter than me and paying them to teach me how to evolve as a human being. The reason I was able to leave the railway, the reason I was able to pay off 30,000 pounds with a debt, the reason I was able to travel around the world, doing something that I'd never done before in my life, writing, interviewing, are you fucking kidding me? I was a railwayman for 20 years. The reason I was able to do those things is because I was in the orbit of Jack Canfield's company, Robert Kiyosaki's company, right? Now, right now, I'm in the orbit of 100 highly evolved, very spiritual, beautiful, driven coaches, smart cookies, people who want to make a big difference in this world, that want to reduce the suffering in this world. And I was talking to my boy about this yesterday, you know, like, he's like, dad, like, how am I going to get there? You know, he's living in Ogmore Vale. How am I going to get there? Well, I used to live in Ogmore Vale and I got there, right? You've got to invest in your time. You've got to invest in you. You've got to invest time and money in you. You've got to surround yourselves by people who are learning, who people who want to evolve, people who want to escape from the matrix, people who want to stop drinking, who want to stop smoking, who want to stop drugging, who want to stop watching pornography, who want to stop doing all these things that numb you and detract away from the work, the core work of relational literacy, learning to understand to talk to yourself with more love and compassion and respect. And once you do that, then wow, you emanate such a beautiful energy around you. And you just keep those people in your orbit, you know, keep those people in your orbit. Coaching course after coaching course after coaching course, you know, that's the advice I got to give you, those two snippets before I head you over to Jack, okay? So with that in mind, 13 years ago, when I um, paid to join the Success Principles by Jack Canfield, I couldn't afford Jack Canfield back then, 13 years ago. Probably would have been able to if it was 30 years ago. But 13 years ago, I couldn't because Jack had built his empire and I ended up working with a coach of Jack's, which I love. She changed my life, but I would have loved to work with Jack. I am giving you the opportunity to work with me. I'm no Jack Canfield, but you get the opportunity to work with me. 1,000 days sober experience. The only way in these days is by sitting down and having a one-to-one conversation with myself for 30 to 40 minutes. I want to work with people who are serious about changing their lives. I want to work with people who want to build a rocket and fly to Mars. I'm not interested in people who want to quit alcohol and want to sit back and take easy street and just find that groove of the path of least resistance and fall asleep. I'm not interested in that. I want people to come to me and say, Lee, I don't care what it costs. I don't care how much time I put in. I want to put alcohol in the rearview mirror and I want to move on and I want to experience my dreams. I want to be a beautiful human being and I want to emanate that spirit and I want it to touch my kids. I want it to touch my parents. I want to touch my loved ones. Ah, I just want it. I want it. I want it. I want it. Come on. Where do we sign up and where do we get going with it? That's who I want to work with, right? And if that's you, then get to www.1000daysober.com. Okay, and sign up for a free chat and we'll see if you can reach that very high bar that I'm setting right now to get you into 1000 Days Sober experience, right? So without further ado, I'm going to shut the hell up and leave you in the capable hands of Jack Canfield. His mission is to inspire and empower people to live the highest vision in a context of love and joy. From his earliest days teaching inner city high school students how to discover their potential and succeed no matter what their circumstances, to becoming a world-renowned transformational speaker and trainer who has conducted more than 2,500 workshops and events all over the world, Jack Canfield has devoted his life and career to helping others achieve their personal definition of success and create lives of greater joy, meaning, and fulfillment. He is the author of The Success Principles. He is the author of The 30-Day Sobriety Solution, and he is also the creator of Chicken Soup for the Soul, the book that has sold more copies than the Bible, probably. Everywhere you are, you'll see a copy of Chicken Food for the Soul, Chicken Soup for the Soul. So without further ado, I'm going to shut the hell up and leave you in the capable hands of my good friend, Jack Canfield.
Welcome to the 1000 Day Sober Podcast, Jack Canfield. How's it going there? I'm really well. How are you? I am absolutely fantastic. Got a little bit nervous, Jack. I don't normally get nervous before interviews, but uh, this is this is an interview for me, like, what are we talking, like 13 years in the making. You know? I know. We've been trying to do this for a long time. You keep asking me and I never had the time and now we finally did it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The grace For the grace of lockdown, huh? And... And I want to start back then, 13 years ago, you know, I was 20-year railwayman. My, uh, I had just read this book by Alan Carr on how to quit alcohol. I, it was like the only nonfiction book I'd ever read. I, I quit drinking and suddenly I'm like, the, 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 my brain's whirring, the fog's gone. I'm, I'm, I'm thinking, what am I doing on the railway? What am I doing in this marriage? Why am I hanging around with these people? And I, and I remember I was lying in bed and I put my hand under the bed and there was your book, The Success Principles, full of dust. A friend had bought it me years ago and I was reading it and I was thinking, well, a load of rubbish. What's this nonsense? I, I, this means nothing to me, you know? And I picked it up this time, free of alcohol, and I read it from front to back. And uh, I joined your Success Principles training course and that was uh, straight after I uh, joined that course, I, I quit my career on the railway. So. I owe you my life, really. So this is a really important moment for me. Wow. I'm, I, well, I appreciate you sharing that story. It's never, it never gets old for me to know that I've had a positive impact in someone's life. So thank you for sharing that. And, and it's an important thing as well, Jack. I'll ask you a question, uh, your question, your thoughts on this, actually, is people get so into instant gratification that they forget that actually when you read the success principles, it might take you 13, 15, 20 years to weave it all together. Not, not everybody's an overnight success story. Do you want to comment on that? Yeah, I tell people success is a triathlon, not a sprint. And basically, you know, a lot of people, I'm 75 and I'm very successful. And a lot of people in their 20s and 30s, they go, I want to be you. I want to be like you. How do I do that? And I say, well, it's not an overnight journey. You know, it takes some time. I mean, I started my career as a high school teacher, learning to stand up in front of people and talk. And then I became a teacher of teachers. I spent a lot of years in um, you know, school cafeterias after school, talking to 40 grade school teachers to the smell of sour milk, you know. And but I got good at it. And I learned about self-esteem and I learned about how to present things and how to tell stories and so forth. And then uh one day I decided to write a book about how to help kids build self-esteem and the book took off. Uh, but I had to do a lot of work to make that happen. You know, I remember my first paid speaking engagement was for $25. I drove through a blizzard in Connecticut to get there, did a talk for two hours, got, got a $25 check and went, I am a paid professional speaker. This is really cool. And then I drove back through a blizzard and didn't kill myself. I mean, it was like a whiteout. Mm -hmm. And, um, and now I get like $30,000 to show up and do a keynote for a conference, you know, but that didn't happen overnight. It went from 30 to 100 to 300 for a whole day. I remember when I got 1,000 for a day, I bought a bottle of champagne. I was still drinking back then, you know, mm -hmm. shared that with my wife. And then, you know, what happens is it went to 3,000 and chicken soup came out and then I'm a celebrity speaker and it just kept going. But chicken soup for the soul, over 300 books in that series now. 230 before we sold the series to an investment group in New York. And, uh, you know, that was one book at a time, one story at a time, one page at a time. And, you know, the first book took a couple of years to write. And then we asked people to submit stories. And so then we had more people sending stuff in and we could do a book in maybe three to six months. But the point is, every step along the way. Now, the advantage that people have today that I didn't have is the internet. Mm. We can much more quickly develop a social presence through doing podcasts, through doing online blogs and video blogs and, you know, posts like on Facebook and Instagram. And so it's, it's easier to build a following using media and technology than we had back then, but it still takes time mm. and it takes work and it takes commitment. It takes focus. And, um, you know, I don't know why, but from an early age, I had a desire to make a difference. You know, my life purpose is to inspire and empower people to live their highest vision in a context of love and joy. And so the chicken soup books inspire people, the books like the success principles and my breakthrough to success seminar, which you referenced, those empower people, give you the tools. And, um, you know, I do it in a lot of different arenas. I've done it in education, in the area of sobriety, in the area of entrepreneurship, sports, you know, and so forth. But for me, I would just say to anybody, uh, if you want it bad enough, it's, you're never given a desire that you don't have the capacity to fulfill. Mm -hmm. And it may take some time. 
You may have to learn some new things. You may have to get a credential you don't have. You may have to go back to school. You may have to do some therapy and counseling work on yourself to get rid of the inner negative beliefs and the blocks and the addictions and all the things that you talk about. And uh, But you have the ability. You, you have the ability. And so I always tell people, trust in your dreams. And, um, you know, I have three children, uh, boys, uh, from two different marriages and then two stepchildren from my third marriage. And, uh, you know, one marriage was five years, second one, 20 years. This last one's gone on 23 years. And we're I, third time's a charm kind of thing. You're getting better at it. We're doing very well. But what I would say is that my three children all, all, dealt with addiction. You know, my oldest one uh, started with uh, alcohol and then he went to marijuana. I got divorced when he was two years old. Mm. And so he lived with my ex-wife who was somewhat nuts, which is why I divorced her. And he didn't get the upbringing he needed. He got them a lot of emotional, uh, not so much abuse, but it, it, uh, abandonment, if you will. Mm. And then he eventually tried uh, heroin and got addicted. And I went through that whole process of helping him go through rehab and drop out of rehab and get back into rehab and do I uh, do Ibogaine, which got him to really recapitulate his life and never went back. My second son uh, got into marijuana really, really heavily. I mean, to the point where it was dysfunctioning him. And my third son, alcohol. And um, they've all gone through rehab. They've all gone through AA. They're, two of them are sponsors. They're all doing well. So I've been down that road that you went down. And uh, it's an important road and the work you're doing and what I'm doing, I think is critical. When your um, children were going through their experiences and uh, you have all the divorce and all that to deal with, was there ever a time, because I, I know you're, you're a very spiritual man. You're kind of like, you, you, you're with it, I would say in, in the UK. Um, but when all that kind of happened, when that happened to me, for example, when I went through a divorce, I found it really difficult not to blame myself. Right. And I, and I would look at my kid with his mom and I was like, ah, you know, like, Every time some, a misstep would happen, instead of looking at it and going, wow, the kid needs to grow, there was a little bit where I was kind of owning it. I was, uh, felt ashamed. Uh, did you ever have to deal with that at all? I don't think I dealt with it as much when it was happening as I did later. Hmm. I think when it was happening, like I was, because my life depended on me being on the road, running seminars and giving keynote speeches and consulting in corporations and schools, I was away a lot. And um, so I think if I have any regrets, it's that I wasn't there as much as I could have and should have been, both for my ex-wife and my son. And um, so at the time, I rationalized it by this is what I have to do. Now, I wasn't making a lot of money in the beginning, maybe $140,000 a year, which may seem like a lot to people. But if you live in California, <laughs> it's not a lot. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, you know, and so, you know, I bought a home. I sold a home in Massachusetts when I moved to California. I sold it was 11 acres of land, and we had a 30 by 30 living room, five bedroom, sold it for $54,000. Moved to LA, the cheapest house I could find was $525,000. Oh, no, so crazy. It's a different world. But the point being that I really felt like I had to go out there and do what I knew to do to bring in the money to be able to pay for the food and the house and all that. I think I was a good father emotionally because I was really present. I'd done my own therapy, my own counseling, and mm. handled most of my own demons. But I don't think I was as present as I could have been. And so I have I have regret about that. And I got in touch about a year and a half ago. I did ayahuasca in the rainforest. And uh, it was very re revelatory. I guess that's a word. I had yeah. a lot of revelation. And one of them was the, the sadness I felt, a really deep sadness that I wasn't there more for my kids. I had this image come up while I was, uh, you know, on a journey in the, in the, in the what do they call it, the, um, the ceremony, where I, I saw this Native American father teaching his son how to track. Like, these are fresh deer tracks. This is why we know they're only a day old, you know, or an hour old or whatever. And he was two sons and he was doing all that. And I thought, you know, I never really spent that much time teaching my younger two children who went off with my ex-wife, who I did have interactions with, life skills. How to, mm -hmm. how to cope with some of the things in life. Um, and and I've, I've made up for that a lot by having them come to my seminars and, and, and spending time with them. And I'm being a really good grandfather now to my seven-year-old grandson. But th there was, I think, pain for that. As I was going through it, I don't think so much. I think it was more the pain of the divorce mm -hmm. and feeling like I was causing someone I loved. I'm the one who left. Hmm. Feeling like I was causing someone who I loved because I still loved them. I just couldn't live with them anymore. Yeah. Feeling I was causing someone I loved pain. And that was very hard for me to be part of. 
So that was the hardest part, I think, for me at that point. No, thanks for sharing that, Jack. And it, it, it kind of like, it rests on a really important point because like I'm in LA right now, I have a four-year-old son here, and then I have a 19-year-old boy in the UK who I haven't seen for eight months because of lockdown. And I go through this perpetual fight in my head about, I need to be with my boy. But at the same time, I know if I'm with my boy, then I can't, I can't grow my, I can't grow myself. I can't uh, grow my business. I, you know what I mean? So I'm, I'm stuck in kind of this, like this internal battle. And I see it a lot in, in the people that I help as well. You know, I'm, I'm kind of like, we're always asking ourselves, what are we going to, what are we going to think when we're 80, 90 and we look back, are we going to be saying, right. man, you shouldn't have worked so hard. You should have just spent your time with your kids yeah. and sacrificed yeah. that or, you know, so sure. what is your view now that you're, you know, the, you're the older side of things? Are you, are you kind of thinking, cause you were very successful. Would you think you could have been as successful and been a really present father physically? I don't think my career would have evolved as quickly as it did. Yeah. Um, might it have evolved eventually when they were older? Uh, possibly, for sure. I will share this with you, and I would ask you the question, like, how does your 19-year-old feel about it? You know, because that's really what's important. Um, my, my middle son said to me once, it was really powerful. I was telling him, I was, I was kind of apologizing, you know, and, uh, for that, for not being there as much as I could have. And he said, Dad, I want you to know something. He said, there was a guy in my life. He was, uh, he grew up in Berkeley. That's mm -hmm. where his, my ex-wife moved. And he grew up there. And kind of a street kid, spent a lot of time on the street. And there was an African-American guy who kind of became a mentor for him. And at one time, he was complaining to the mentor about my dad wasn't there for me. And he said, Kyle, the universe always provides. You know, I have been your surrogate father for the last 12 years. You've had a father. Now, your biological father may not have been there for you, and you can focus on that and feel bad about it. He's there for you now because I'm very connected to my kids now. Yeah, He said, but you can focus on what you didn't have or you can focus on what you did get. And you got a lot of fathering. And so, and, and Kyle acknowledged that. And he said, I, I, Dad, I want you to know I don't, I don't blame you anymore. I really realized that that's been the truth for me, that I got what I needed. You know, and he's a very sufficient adult right now he's a he's a dj he's a hip-hop artist he has a recording studio he's actually um recorded music that's won um, uh, grammys and so he's very very successful in that world uh in in the world of bay area hip-hop up in and yeah. rap music in, in san francisco so i think that you can't go back and change what what you didn't do you can what do you want to call it? Make amends, do balancing behaviors, etc. And um, you know, Vietnam vets who basically killed children uh, or killed the parents of the children actually adopted kids who lost their parents, mm -hmm. and that was a way of balancing it out in the universe, in a way of saying, okay, I'm not going to feel guilty about that. I did what I had to do. Mm -hmm. I was I was I was drafted as a marine. I'm in a land where people are shooting at me. I bonded with my brothers in arms and I'm going to do whatever I can to survive and, and keep them alive. And you know, maybe I look back later and say, gee, I wish I hadn't killed all those people, but it was the only thing I could do at the time to survive myself. I'm going to forgive myself and make these amends and move on. And I think that's what we have to do in life. Yeah, I, I've definitely done that. I've definitely looked back and thought, wow, Lee, you in a really tough spot there. You did the right thing. Could you have changed some things? Yeah, but you know, You've done it, right? And my boy, I'm luckier because he's 19. When I'm right. kind of like on the phone to him going, oh, I'm really missing you. To him, having this conversation like me and you are, that's yeah. just like normal parenting for him. He's just like, yeah, I see what yeah. you're feeling about, like, you know? So yeah. I actually think, Jack, through your work and every subsequent mentor that I've had since, I am able to be such a better spiritual, emotional, maybe not physical, father for him than I ever would have been if I would have stayed there, if I would have drank, if I would have just narrowed myself in and oh, yeah. provincialism. What kind of kid would he have been then? That's the way I'm looking at it, right? Right. No, no, absolutely. And, you know, my success has given my children a lot of advantages that they, mm -hmm. they wouldn't have had otherwise. I mean, I'm not sure that we could have afforded the rehab they needed. Yeah. You know, some of these rehab places are expensive. And, um, and getting the counseling and the therapy and being able to send them to 10-day meditation retreats and, and help my middle son, you know, build a studio in his, in, in his um, apartment that he had, uh, a condo that he eventually was able to buy. I paid the down payment. He pays the monthly rent. Yeah. So yeah. I've never given my kids anything like, here's a house. Um, yeah. I said, I'll help you. 
you know, uh, my stepson wanted to learn to fly. I said, great. How much does it cost? He went and researched it. $2,000 for lessons, and then you get your license. I said, great. You go earn the first thousand, I'll match it. Like and so that. I've always like been, that. you know, like, like I want to be supportive, but I don't want to be uh, enabling, you know. And so uh, that's how I've approached it with them. And, and they've all done fairly well and mm. some tough times. I mean, you know, sometimes you wonder, can you get your 18-year-old to 18-year-old and they, they're going to survive? You know, they're going to die in a car crash or they're going to walk into a house where they think there's a party and get shot by someone because they're so narked out that they don't know where they are. And um, the fact that they're all functioning adults. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. The the shooting one is one I'm just getting used to now I'm living in LA. Like, I obviously never had to deal with that when I lived in the UK. Like, when my kid went to school, he just went to school. I never worried about him getting shot or anything. So that's a new one for me. But uh, Yeah, it's absolutely wild. I mean, there are more children shot in the United States every year than anywhere in the world, except maybe like in Africa where you've got these Boko Haram and things like that. It's absolutely crazy. And and talking, uh, talking about, you know, being able to provide for your children and having that like heartfelt kind of like buzz that you're doing something, you know, for your kids and paralleling that with your first kind of opening gambit in the success principles, like the the one that really stuck with me throughout my life, taking 100% responsibility, if you like, where was the inspiration behind that chapter? Uh, and just share your thoughts on it because it, it's not easy. I, I, I've been trying to practice this for the last 13 years after reading it. It's very, very difficult. So just talk about that a little bit. Well, you know, I started out my career as a high school teacher and then I taught teachers and then I married my first wife who was a psychotherapist and she taught me how to be a psychotherapist. I did not go to graduate school to get an MA in psychology. I had an MA in psychological education. Like how do you teach it in school? We used to say, if it's done on time, it's called education. If it's done late, it's called therapy. How do you learn to manage your emotions, to clarify your values, to communicate effectively, ask for what you want, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And, um, but she was a skilled therapist. And in Massachusetts at the time, there was no licensing laws for therapists. This was back in the 1970s. And um, so I, she had a private practice. I co-did it with her for a while. I started seeing private patients and so forth. And we brought a guy to Massachusetts. We used to put on training seminars for other people who wanted to learn to do therapy. So I invited this man named Robert Resnick, who is the, uh, one of the directors of the Gestalt Therapy Institute of Los Angeles, to come and do a training seminar. And he really was a big on this idea of 100% responsibility, that everything that happens to you, you either created it, promoted it, or are allowing it to happen. And he just drilled that home. And he taught me that formula, which I put in the first chapter of my book, E plus R equals O, event plus response equals outcome. Everything you experience right now is an outcome of how you responded to an earlier event. Someone gave you a bottle of alcohol, you drank it. Then you got a different outcome than someone gave you a bottle of alcohol and you say, I don't do that. You know, someone presented you with an opportunity to go to rehab. You said, fine. Someone else presents someone, you know, opportunity to go, leave me alone. You can't tell me what to do. You're crazy. Leave me alone. And they go and they drink, you know. I give you a a $1,000 bonus. You spend it or you invest it. Two different responses. Now, a year later, you're going to be in a very different place depending on what responses you had to what events. And he literally drilled down to everything. If I, if I look cross-eyed at you, or if I, I had a, my, my second wife was abandoned as a four-year-old daughter. She was, her, her, her mother left, left her with a neighbor. And if you were looking at her and she just looked away, if I just looked away like that, She'd have a what does it say a very small abandonment experience, a micro abandonment experience. You just watch her face go like that. So literally, my looking away was an event. Her response was to be triggered by that earlier abandonment, and then to feel like I was abandoning her husband, which I wasn't. Mm. So we got down to that micro level, and I started looking at everything in my life and realizing the way I talk to my kids is the way that creates how they respond to me. If I don't listen to my wife, she gets mad at me. If I listen to her, she pays, she, she's happy. So I started looking at what are the responses of successful people? What are they doing different than other people? And I realized they weren't blaming people. They weren't complaining about the stock market. They weren't complaining about their employees. They weren't complaining about their boss. They weren't making excuses. They were 100% responsible for their success and for their failures. They owned their failures. And so I started realizing that 100% responsibility is really the way to play. And I have a chapter in my book also called 99% a bitch, 100% a breeze. And I often say to people, how would you like to be married to someone who's 99% committed to monogamy? 
<laughs> it's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I like that. At least 3.65 days a year, you'd have to worry, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, so, and, and, and a lot of times people say, well, in a marriage, it's a 50 50 deal. You're 50% responsible, I'm 50%. But when things go bad, whose 50% is it? It's always your fault. It's your 50%. Mm-hmm. If only you would, you always do this. You never do that, you know? And so I've learned, I took a course actually uh, with this person who was teaching these principles in relationships. And he said, one, he gave us some principles to live by. One of them was, no matter what the behavior of my partner, no matter how troubling or disappointing, I will act as if it's the behavior of someone who loves me. Mm-hmm. Now think about that. That changes everything. That's a response other than, well, if they forgot my birthday, they don't love me. If they didn't show up on time for dinner, they don't love me. And so that changed my relationship with my wife at the time. And so there are literally so many sneaky ways that not taking 100% responsibility shows into our life. And it takes a while. It, it's, it's something you have to do over time. And what I advise people is anytime you find yourself upset, you're not taking 100% responsibility. You are responding in a way, you know, Byron Katie's work, are you familiar with that? Yeah. Um, um, it, it, we'd actually just been reading a book to my daughter, my four-year-old daughter um, on that thing. Uh, is this true? Is it 100% true? Exactly. Uh, yeah, she said she wrote a book called "Loving What Is." Yeah, and she said it's never what happens that upsets you; it's your belief that it shouldn't have happened. Mm. It's the belief that my husband shouldn't do that. My daughter should put her things away. You know, the school should open. Everyone should be wearing masks, and no one should get COVID. You know, whatever it is, when it doesn't go the way we think it should go, it's our belief that it should be different that gets us in trouble. Mm. Now we can believe there should be more social justice, and we can then work to create that. But getting angry about what is instead of being visionary about what could be, it just upsets us. And and then we say, well, they pissed me off. They made me angry. He ruined my day. She made me nervous because she didn't come home on time. No, I made myself nervous by imagining my child wrapped around a tree in an automobile accident instead of believing that she's out there and she's fine. She'll be home. So Mm -hmm. I'm doing that to me, what I think, what I visualize, what I do. And once I got that, and once anyone gets it, life becomes so different. It just, it's like you'd step out of a veil into a world where you now realize I can create anything I want because I'm not longer creating what I don't want. This is the, I would even go to so far as to say the, 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 the fine lines between divorce and actually falling head over heels in love are so fine sometimes. Uh, me yeah. and my wife, me and my wife, Liza, not long ago, sat down and had a conversation and said, we love each other dearly, but do we want to continue to be in this relationship with each other, right? Since that conversation, I've done some coaching and I've, I've done a lot of tremendous work around uh, 100% responsibility, um, operating from my wounded self, finding a grain of truth in what somebody else says. And as I'm able to stop defending, stop justifying, owning my own shit, just opening up to people and saying, yeah, I did that, I'm hugely sorry, all of a sudden... Liza is completely and utterly head over heels in love with me. And he's like, I've been waiting for this guy to emerge, right? I've been waiting for him to emerge. So, and this has taken 13 years for me since I picked up your book. And 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 I use your book as the bookend because that is when I first started to grow and develop myself as a human being. That was when I got, you plucked me out of the matrix, right? Right. And 13 years later, I'm now kind of like, kind of getting it. Okay. So why does it take people so bloody long or is it just me? Like you, I guess, (laughs) I guess we got to start thinking to ourselves, I'll tell you what's coming up for me, being versus doing. So I can read the success principles. I start doing right. Do five things every day. Do, 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 do. But I'm not being the man you, you're trying to make me be because I'm not operating from my heart or I'm, I'm, I'm up here all the time, right? Do you want to talk right. about that a little bit? Well, most of our doing relates to outer activity and creating success in the world, like money and fame and impact and the big house and cars, whatever. Being is really important. And I think being should always precede doing. You know, a lot of people say, well, if I do what I need to do and make a lot of money, then I'll be able to have what I want. And then I can be anything, you know, then I'll be happy. And the truth is you got to start with your being, do the things that that being would do. Like how would a loving husband respond to that? How would a non-judgmental person respond to that? How would a father who's loving and caring and non-reactive respond to that? And so your doing comes out of your being. 
you're being loving, you're being, you're being compassionate. Like I, I believe that we are meant to be expressing qualities in the universe. My two qualities are love and joy. And then I inspire people and empower them through you know, a loving and enjoying environment, a loving and enjoying personality. I, lo- I have a lot of fun in life. I love people unconditionally, you know, 99%. I still get mad sometimes at our president and some other things that people do like that. But the reality is that I also know he's a very wounded person. He's doing the best he can with his own wounds to meet his needs, etc. I have I, I have a total belief that anyone who does anything you don't like is doing the best they can to meet a basic need that they have that's not been met. They don't have the skills, the knowledge, the tools, or the awareness to do it better. You know, gang members do drive-by shootings so they can be, they get the prestige in the gang so they can basically be in a group that supports them and hopefully not die in the ghetto. You know, so that's the best they know how to do. The failure of our prisons, we put people in prison and we don't teach them new skills to get the same things they were getting illegally. And then they just learn, I call prisons, you know, uh, crime universities because they just teach each other more ways to do it better. But the point being that we have the, I kind of lost my train of thought there when I went off on the prisons. Uh, we were talking about why does it take so long and why becoming it, the person. Why does being. it take so long to be, yeah, being yeah. rather than doing? Because I think most people don't get any education in that. Our schools don't focus on that. We don't have psychological education in our schools. We don't have it, you know, unless you have therapy or unless you go into drug or alcohol or, you know, eating disorder rehab, something like that, where that occurs, um, Mm. most people are never exposed to that. Mm. You know, my big thrust for years was what we called psychological education. How do you educate people about their feelings? How do you educate them about the things we're talking about? That if you're angry, it's because you have a belief that somebody violated rather than that thing actually is a terrible thing. You know, when we hear about a terrorist attack, we get all upset. The people in, you know, Iran celebrate. It's the same Mm -hmm. act. It's Mm -hmm. just a different belief about what it means. We make our own meaning. And so we can make meaning that makes us happy or we can make meaning that makes us sad and, and, and upset. And most people have been conditioned by television, by our politicians, by our parents, by our religions, by our states. You know, we get upset with Michigan State beats Ohio. And like, you know, for two days, we can be depressed. (laughs) And it's just because you've identified as an Ohio football fan, as opposed to identifying as a spiritual being of light and love. Mm. And you just happen to enjoy watching a good competitive football game. So I think for most of us, it's just a lack of awareness, a lack of resources, a lack of knowledge and skills. So you said, hey, I, I, I did some therapy. I did some work on myself. Well, you had the knowledge, the awareness, and the resources to be able to afford to do that, the time, et cetera. A lot of people don't. Imagine growing up black, poor in you know Alabama somewhere, maybe on a farm, maybe in a city. You know, Where, where are you going to go for therapy? Mm. You know, One of the biggest things we find, when I was doing research for our book, The 30-Day Sobriety Solution, the biggest problem we found for a lot of people is there's no mental health services in a lot of rural America. You know, if you have an alcohol problem, you got to travel 120 miles to the county seat to even see a mental health worker that might be funded by the county, let alone someone you would pay for. Mm. And so a lot of people, we just don't have the resources. And so, but little by little, what you do, what I do, the books we write, the podcasts you do, the interviews, we're making people aware Mm. and we're teaching. You can go on YouTube now and you can learn how to manage your emotions. You can learn how to do EFT tapping. You can Mm. learn how to do NLP. So it's out there, but you have to be aware of it. You can't seek what you're not aware exists. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm piecing this together as you're talking because, you know, my, my focus on the moment is I look at my mom. And I see how she's given her power away to my father and she's now 65 years of age, right? And uh, it, it upsets me and it saddens me. So I, I, want, I, want to, I want to change women's lives like that. And I get a lot of them coming to me in their 40s and 50s who are stuck in these marriages and they, they can't find the courage to leave uh, and their husband is not seeing them, is not listening to them. And, and so I'm like, how can I help these women? And I'm thinking, I'm going to help the men. So if I help the men... Uh, to start being instead of doing and start recognizing their woman and their beauty and how amazing they are in their life and start serving them, then that will work. So I want to continue on that thread, right? Because you're right. When I was younger, I had no um, education either from my parents or from school of, of emotional intelligence, of being versus doing, none of that. So I grew up with a very fixed mindset. Um, external validation is needed for my to build my self-worth. Then I read your book, right? And uh, I didn't have the money to pay for the training course at the time. I whacked it on a credit card. I remember like I was so nervous. I remember your coach saying to me, if you want to live your dreams, man, you want to live your dreams. This is where it starts. And I was like, okay, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. 
I rode the crest of that wave. I quit my job. And then you, in your book, The Success Principles, you talk about Robert Kiyosaki and Rich Dad Poor Dad. So I started doing Robert Kiyosaki's course as well. But then after that, I started doing things on my own. And this is where I think my, my dip, my 13-year dip. Now, don't get me wrong. I've done really well for myself, right? And I'm really proud of where I am. But I'm just now doing Preston Smiles Kaboom Coaching. You know Preston, right? And I I've, I've took a vow. I took a vow during that course. I am never, ever going to stop coaching. I'm going to go from coaching course to coaching course to coaching course because it works for me. And, and I, I'm immersed around the right people. I'm, getting, I'm learning all the time. I'm being challenged. I'm getting that motivation. And it's allowing me to grow. So, you know, my advice to people out there is don't stop improving yourself, but don't, you don't have to do it alone. Like coaches, training courses, people like Jack and Jack's team, incredibly important. Do you want to touch upon that a little bit? Yeah. You know, we're a product of our environment. I have a good friend named Jim Bunch who teaches about environments and he really goes deep and deeply into it. And, you know, we are the only human beings, human beings are the only animals that can create an environment to influence us the way we want to influence us. So our environment includes people. It includes the physical stuff around us. Is it all cluttered? Is it beautiful? Is it harmonious? Uh, do we use feng shui to control the energy? Do we have colors that are soothing? You've got plants behind you, you know, whatever. And so there, there's a mimetic environment of our beliefs. There's our financial environment. How much money do we have? How many people support us, et cetera. So you have to ask yourself, are the people and the environments that you're in inspiring you or expiring you? Are they encouraging you? Or are they discouraging? Or are they lifting you up? Or are they bringing you down? So we all have the ability now, and a lot of it for free on the internet, to surround ourselves with people and ideas that can lift us up and knowledge and information. There's free classes everywhere. You know, you can learn what most people have to teach just by watching their, their video blogs because they have to keep putting stuff out there and eventually they put their whole book online, you know? Yeah. So that's available. However, I agree with you that, you know, my first year of being in the human potential movement, I took 37 weekend workshops. I was really into it. And I ran out of money and that's when I started a growth center so I could bring in other people to do and I, I people would pay to hear Bob Resnick, for example, I mentioned earlier about 100 yeah. responsibility, and I could be in there free because they paid for it. So that's right, right. been a like hotel it. room, and that's how I did it, you know. And then eventually, I married my first wife, and she had a trust fund. She got six thousand dollars every three months, so twenty four thousand a year, and that allowed us to buy our first home. We had a thirty by thirty living room. We did workshops there, and that turned into the New England Center, which became a growth center at the time, and uh, you know. A lot of that, I would say the rest is history, but we, I spent 10 years there doing that work. The, the point is, I was surrounded by people. Every weekend, I had someone teaching this stuff coming into my center, and I would be in the workshop learning from them. Every three months, I would go to a growth center's director's meeting with some of the most conscious people on the planet. Mm -hmm. I go now to the Transformational Leadership Council twice a year, 140 people like John Gray, Men Are From Mars, you know, yeah. all these people doing this work, I get to hang out with them. And so, and then eventually I became one, you know, I want to be with you. Now I am you, you know, I am mm -hmm. one of you. And so surround yourself and coaches who put the time and energy. I mean, you put the time and energy in to develop skills and mm -hmm. consciousness that people can benefit from. They benefit from your vibration of a positivity of a of belief that is possible of your own confidence, et cetera. And you want to be around that. You know, Tony Robbins was very interesting when Mark Victor Hansen, my co-author for Chicken Soup for the Soul, he was in New York teaching. There was a day-long conference. There were three teachers and Mark Victor Hansen and Tony and then a third person. I don't remember who it was. And Mark and Tony were behind stage. And at that time, Tony was making $50 million a year off of, you know, his infomercials. And uh, Mark turned to Tony and said, Tony, you don't even, you never even graduated college. I'm not sure you graduated high school. You're making 50 million a year. I have a PhD and I'm not making 50 million a year. I'm, I think he was making a million at the time. Uh -huh. He said, what advice do you have for me? He said, Mark, do you have a mastermind group? He said, yes, I do. Now, for those of you who don't know, a mastermind group is maybe six, eight people who gather together in person, on Zoom, whatever. And you support each other in brainstorming solutions to ideas. You encourage each other. You open up your, your contact list to people, so forth. And he said, what's the most money anyone in your, in your mastermind group makes? And he said, I don't know, two, $3 million. He says, no one in my mastermind group makes less than $100 million a year. Wow. He said, that's who I surround myself with. Because mm. he found all these entrepreneurs that were in San Diego that were doing that. And he said, I want to be part of your group. 
And so they were teaching him to think bigger. And he, so Mark came back and said, we got to get better people in our mastermind group. So we reached out to some people who were making five or $10 million a year. We grew our mastermind group. Now, I'm talking about money right now, but whether you want to lose weight, you want to hang out with people who know how to stay thin. If you want to be spiritual, you want to hang out with people who are spiritual. You want to hang out with people who are sober if, you're, if sobriety is your issue. And so basically, you've got to find a group of people that are already doing and being who you want to be and doing what you want to do. And, you know, Jim Rohn said, you're the average of the five people you spend the most time with. And it's mm. so true. And so you have to take responsibility for that. That's another one I got from the success principles. I really, yeah. it really rang true for me because I, when I stopped drinking alcohol, no word of a lie, I, um, I just divorced myself. Either people left me or I left them. It was a combination yeah. of both. Everybody. Like, I think the only person that survived out of that was my relationship with my boy. And obviously that was distant because he, he stayed with his mom. But my, my, my relationship with my family, very estranged. They just, they just don't understand who I am. And I, I don't really see my, I don't see my friends anymore. So, yeah. You know. Well, what happens is you started to make them feel uncomfortable. Yeah. Because you were now vibrating at a higher level, actualizing at a higher level, which then confronted them with their unwillingness to go there and their mediocrity, their resignation, whatever it might have been. Mm. And so it's too much to be confronted with every day. And so people drop away. You know, and, and where do people that drink hang out together? They go to bars, they go to parties, they drink at home with other people, et cetera. Mm. So there's this constant reinforcement. And when you stop drinking, I know for a lot of people, all of those people who are your drinking buddies go, come on, man, have a drink. You can handle it, you know. And that's not good. That's not going to get yeah. you where you want to go. And eventually they start to resent you. And if they're still trying to, you know, you're, you're ordering a club soda or a ginger ale or whatever, and like, you know, they're just messing with you. And a culture, like a lot of my clients were Wall Street people. And the Wall Street culture is you work your ass off doing a lot of things, some of them immoral, and then you go out and you basically numb out by drinking a lot. And they, mm -hmm. a lot of people get drunk every single night. And when you stop doing that, you're, you stop being part of the club. What happened to me, Jack, is um, I grew up in a very patriarchal patriarchally controlled household. Like my, my dad was never violent. Like he always, one thing he always taught me is never hit a woman, for example. Right. So I never had that to worry about, but he was emotionally absent. So as a child, you know, completely abandonment issues, you know, and then right. in my two uh, marriages, the feedback that I've got, particularly in my second one with, with Liza, who is like, you know, she's, she's able to, she's really emotionally intelligent. So she's been able to, over the years, say to me, wow, you're just like your dad, right? Like, so I always say, I'll never be like my dad. And then all of a sudden, you're just like your dad. And I'll see that I'll behave in ways where I'm actually thinking I'm the boss. I'm actually thinking that I'm in charge of this household. I'm, I'm uh, trying to uh, stamp my authority by shouting. And, and she would bring this to my attention. I would notice this. Um, and it's very damaging. And I see this in my clients a lot. So it's good for me because I'm able to empathize with that. What type of man was you as you was going, uh, growing up, but in terms of this patriarchal, matriarchal kind of uh, combination? Yeah. No, I grew up in a very, very similar situation. My first father, I, my biological father and my mother uh, divorced when I was six. My biological father was violent. He was a drunk, mm. not a drunk. I say he was a heavy drinker. Mm. And uh, when he would drink, he would get angry. So he had all this anger underneath. He was a, he was a pilot during World War II. He taught bomber pilots how to fly bombers. And um, basically, there's a very macho culture. Um, they would literally strap a, a case of beer to the wing of a plane, and then they would take the plane off and fly around at a high altitude to get the beer cold. <laughs> and they would come wow. back down. Oh, no, that and they, would would land, and they would sit on the tarmac and they would drink their beer. And so it was a very macho culture. You see these movies like Top Gun, you know, where they take the air thing with the, the pins and they put it on the chest and they pound it in. So you get the little indentation and it bleeds, mm -hmm. you know, you're, you're a man now you've gone through this rite of passage, like yeah. what the gang members do to people. We're all going to beat you up and hopefully you survive. And now you're a member. And so what happens is that I grew up in that culture. It was a culture of guns and knives and macho-ness and hunting and all that kind of stuff. And I was much more sensitive to that. I think that's kind of who I always was underneath that. But I had to kind of conform to my father's ways. I remember the first time I killed a rat. 
in a dump with a gun. I felt bad about it, you know, but mm-hmm. I had, I didn't have to, I chose to do it because my dad was doing it and I wanted to be cool. And then my stepfather was in the Navy during World War II and he was pretty macho too. He was a son of a Greek immigrant and they worked really hard to survive in America. So that was a hardworking, you know, the Greek man kind of thing. And um, so I grew up, my mother was the cook and the washer and the, you know, the house cleaner. And my mother never got a driver's license. She was dependent on my father. Uh, my first father beat her, beat us. And that's why he, my mom divorced him, which is amazing. We were Catholic at the time. So for her to divorce him meant to be excommunicated. So that was a big step on her part. Mm-hmm. And um, so what I'm grateful for. Uh, and so I grew up there. And then when I was in the fifth grade, we were poor. My dad made $8,000 a year, eight with three zeros. And then my rich aunt who had, she built parts of tanks during World War II uh, in Wheeling, West Virginia. It was a steel town. And um, she was rich. And she had a son named Jack who died in an automobile accident his freshman year. And so she kind of adopted me because my name was Jack. I just, I go to her house for Thanksgiving, for Christmas, for a day or two. But, you know, I didn't live there or anything. But she sent me to a private school in town that her son had gone to. It was a private military school. So from fifth grade to I graduate high school, it was yes, sir, no, sir. Your shoes better be shined. You want to be a captain when you're a senior. And I was. I had the freshmen. You know, I, they, I taught them. I graduated third in my class. I got all these medals and track and football and swimming. And, you know, football is a macho sport. Mm. Um, and so I grew up that way and had my nose broken, my ankle broken, two fingers broken, played rugby at Harvard. And I thought that's who you're supposed to be. And not having girls in school with me, girls became objects. Right. Girls became someone that made you feel good when you made out with them. And someone that if they were pretty, gave you esteem with your friends. Mm. I can remember at Harvard, uh, my sophomore year, we're in the, the, the dining area. It was Friday night. Football game was the next day. And you'd had dates. People would come in from other colleges, you know, for the weekend girls. And this guy walks in with what looked like a Playboy model. And the entire dining hall stood up and started applauding, (laughs) which was like, we're basically saying, you scored, dude. Mm -hmm. You got this good looking woman. You're probably going to have sex. But it objectified women. And that's what I grew up with. And it was only when I had a woman as a lab partner in in a science class that I actually got to know someone beyond I'm going to date you in high school and then try to make out with you. And if you don't, then bummer, I'm going to find someone else. I mean, I was a very shallow relationship to women. And it was only when I got into graduate school and started studying psychological education and being in encounter groups and doing therapy that I really started to understand and and learn how to be the kind of man that could be a good husband that could treat women in a non-misogynistic way that, that would treat them with respect and understand them and also understand them were different. I mean, John Gray's Men Are From Mars, Women Are From Venus really helped me a lot. Hmm. Yeah, and me as well. And, and I'm assuming as you was doing the research for the 30-day surprise solution, you're finding a lot of these people, right? I mean, you're 75, but I'm, I'm, I'm seeing it at 35, I'm seeing it at 45, I'm seeing it in 20s. It, it, does it, it At some point, I'm hoping that we're going to evolve out of this but, uh, uh, you know, I'm either getting women coming to me saying, I can't even get my, I'm, I'm afraid to ask my man to look after the kids so I can watch one of your coaching videos. Because, mm-hmm. because uh, you know, he's been working all day. Like, what have you been doing all day? Well, I've been working as well. And, and, and it's, it's, it's in the women's head and it's in the men's head, right? So right. how do, I'm always trying to teach people that the solution is to become allies, Right. So can you talk a little bit about you and Inga? Like, how do you, how do you and Inga, how are you good allies? What have been your challenges? Right. And how have you managed to knit that together? Well, we've been together 23 years. We've certainly had our challenges. I mean, I think Harville Hendricks says in his book, Getting the Love You Want, that we tend to marry the people that will reactivate our childhood wounds so we can heal them. And so, you know, uh, here I am marrying women who were abandoned. And, and I was abandoned and they were abandoned and now we're both abandoning each other, you know? So it's like, we had to work through that stuff. And Inga's father committed suicide when she was eight. So she was abandoned, mm-hmm. you know? I mean, I remember three years into our marriage, she wakes up in the middle of the night screaming, daddy, daddy, please don't do it. And it was the first time she felt safe enough in her life to let all those feelings come up because I'm a pretty safe space. Yeah. And uh, what happens is, you know, it didn't happen in her first marriage, didn't happen in her second marriage. She married two very, her first husband was a somewhat abusive, 
a drug addicted skier, very good skier, best skier on the mountain. She wanted to be a good skier. So she ends up marrying him. Uh, second husband was a, a wonderful artist and she really admired him. Turned out later, he wanted to have a sex change operation. He really wanted to be a woman. And so that was not fulfilling for her. So she got divorced and then we got married. So the reality is she had a lot of people abandoning her, if you will, uh, through drug addiction, through wanting to be a different gender than what she wanted to be married to. And so the reality was all that stuff literally is going to show up. The challenge is, can we have enough psychological awareness, skills, uh, support from the outside world to move through those experiences to get to the other side? Because we're really, when we are stimulating each other so much that you feel like you need to yell, or so much for her to feel like she needs to walk out of the house to get away from whatever it is that you do, you know, mm. fight, flight, or freeze, or, or faint. That's one of my friends likes to say, just go unconscious. Um, those are the times that are the richest opportunities for growth. Mm. And so my wife and I, and, and we weren't, you know, as, as skilled as I am, uh, we still got into little tiffs. And, you know, sometimes I would throw something, not at her, but just, ah, you know, <laughs> whatever. Um, and so, uh, what we've come to though, is when that happens, we say, look, we're triggered. We know it's something from our past. Let's take a look. Let's, mm. let's slow down here and look. Cause I want to say things like you always do that, you know? And, and she says, you always say you always do that, you know? And so, so then now we got to look at that, you know, and, and, and we work it through. And sometimes it takes 20 minutes, sometimes it takes five minutes. We have a technique that we developed called do-over. So I'll come into the room and say something that maybe she gets upset by and I can see it's going nowhere. And I'll say, we're going to do a do-over. So I walk out of the room and pretend it's five minutes ago. I walk in, I say something totally different. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and, and now we're, we're where we want to be, you know, or I need to apologize and I apologize. I didn't mm. used to apologize very well because I had such a need to be right, Yeah, you know? And as I like to teach people, you either get to be right or you get to be happy. Mm. And so, um, the, the, but it takes skills. You know, for the people you're talking about where they're afraid to ask their husband for something, one of the things it, that needs to happen is what we call a difficult, honest conversation where she can say something like, you know, I walk on eggshells around you. I'm afraid to say things because you're going to blow up. I know you work really hard. I know it's difficult for you. I know you don't love your job that much and it's just a way to make money. And when you come home, you just want to get away from it. You either want to have a beer and numb out watching TV. I get that. I also want you to know what that does for me is I feel like I'm in a marriage where I'm, I'm, I'm going to be verbally abused. And I, I fell in love with you because we loved each other. And that was really wonderful. I don't feel that much anymore. And for me, you know, I'm having thoughts like, I love you. I want our kids to stay together. I don't want to leave them. I want to continue with you. But I'm finding myself having thoughts like, this isn't worth it. Mm -hmm. And so we need to talk about how we can both end our day where I can find time to do the things I need to do to nurture me and grow. And you can find a time to do you, but it needs to be more equal. And, and I want to hear your side of it as well, but I need you to hear me. And I teach this process called a heart talk where you start with an object. I'll just take this bottle that's sitting here, but you can take a teddy bear. Something softer is always useful. And the rule is I'm going to talk about my feelings and you can't interrupt me until I hand you this object. Mm. And once I hand it to you, you can say whatever you want to say and I can't interrupt you until you hand it back to me. And if we want to add some skills to it, you have to repeat what you just heard me say so I know that you got it. And I'm going to correct you if you didn't quite get my meaning before I give you the bottle. Mm. And now it's your turn. And so now we're teaching reflective listening and we're teaching people to hear each other without interrupting and exploding. And so, it, it, but it's skills. And obviously, if you have a coach or a counselor or a workshop teaching you that where you can practice it, it's better because you have a neutral observer, a referee, if you will. But these are things that people can try on their own. Hmm. It, I'm, I'm thinking like um, it's a difference between uh, Preston Smiles always says this is a difference between being a therapist and a coach. Yeah. Therapy is really good. It really helps to get to the kind of nitty gritty about what's been going on and stuff. But a coach, a coach is really going to help you kind of like learn the ability and, and to like what you just said, then the way you just said it was like pure experience, pure gold. A lot of people listening to that would go, right. Okay. I need to replay this back. And it's really challenging for them to do it. But, but you've got to keep at it. Like, I did a do-over like you yesterday. Liza came downstairs. We were talking about something, about her father, actually. And uh, all of a sudden, I, the energy changes. And I said, what just happened? She goes, 
I don't know, but I'm feeling really distant to you right now. I said, okay, can we rewind back to the point where that happened? And then I changed, I, I started again, but I said something different, right? Having that conversation is huge. And this is what I loved about the 30-day sobriety solution was it wasn't about, okay, come in here and for 30 days, we're going to tell you not to drink. Every time you're triggered, we're going to go through it and tell you why you're stupid because you had a drink. It was nothing like that. You broke it down into phases. And those phases were, amongst other things, uh, making sure that you're physically ready for this, making sure your nutrition's right, making sure you're mentally you know, relationships, all these type of things, you know? So how did that come about, the, the, the framework? You know, what, how did, because I, I know myself what it's like sure. when right, I want to help people, but how do you do it and structure it? Well, I had written the Success Principles book, you know, before we did the 30-Day Sobriety Solution. And I, that came out of like the, the Success Principles. Someone says, how long did it take you to write the Success Principles? I said, 30 plus years. And the actual sitting at the typewriter, maybe six, seven months. Yeah. But the learning what I needed to know in order to write that book took years and years and years and years of working with people, seeing what worked, what didn't work, and learning there's a sequence to things that if you don't take 100% responsibility for your life, everything else that follows doesn't quite work. And so you've got to do that first and really anchor that, Velcro that in into the system. And then then you have to know what your purpose in life is. Then you have to know what your vision for your ideal life. And then you have to set goals to make sure that vision becomes concrete and measurable, specific things you can you know, commit to, and then so on and so forth. And so when I met Dave Andrews, who's the co-author of the book, Dave had been an online sobriety coach uh, for a number of years. And he had his story was that he started out as a total alcoholic, he was overweight because he was eating too much, drinking too much. He was a closet drinker. He was hiding his alcohol, you know, all the, the symptoms of stuff, you know, all day long thinking about when am I going to have my first drink? What am I yeah. going to drink? And so forth. And then he went to rehab, didn't work, went again, didn't work. One day he's listening to a Tony Robbins tape in his car and he goes, this is good stuff. How come they don't teach this in rehab? Why aren't they teaching these skills in rehab? So he started listening to more of Tony's stuff. Then he got my book. He went through my book and he started applying those in his own life and he transformed. Hmm. Then he started doing this online sobriety solution uh, work that he was doing. And then he came and took a, a workshop with me, you know, a live retreat. And that's when we met. Hmm. And I loved what he was doing. And I said, Dave, what you're doing is too good, too effective, too powerful. He had an 85% rate, whereas most rehabs 35%, and that's a good rate. Yeah. And um, so I said, you know, you're you're working with 20, 30 people a year. This needs to go out to millions. Mm -hmm. uh, let's write a book together. And originally, we were going to call it the Success Principles for Sobriety, because we're going right. to build on the Success Principles brand. So it was taking the stuff that he was already doing. He was much more aware of all the literature in, in you know, sobriety than I was, although I'd had my own experience with my kids with 12 step and reading some books about it, not wanting to be a, you know, a, a codependent parent and all that kind of stuff. Anyway, so what happens was that we combined his work with my work. And so the structure of that book is really the structure of the success principles. You've got to take hundred percent responsibility. You got to quit blaming. You got to quit uh, making complaints. You got to quit giving excuses. And then you got to have a vision. What's your vision for sobriety? What do you want to be doing afterwards? If you don't have a vision, you know, this is an interesting statistic, not statistic, fact I learned. I was interviewing a woman a couple of weeks ago who had been a um, support group leader for people with cancer. And she was a nurse. And she said to me, after 20 years of doing this, I noticed something. She said, I would ask people, what are you going to do if you survive? What are you going to do when you, when you have remission? And she said, the people that could give me a very specific vision, I'm going to go to Hawaii, we're going to rent a house on the beach, we're going to snorkel, we're going to go deep sea fishing, we're going to do all this stuff. And then we're going to go to Asia, and we're going to see these, the golden temple of the Buddha and all this. She said, they, they mostly survive. She said, the people said, well, I don't know, maybe I'll see the grandkids, maybe I'll move to New York where they are, maybe I'll start a hobby, you know. She said, most of those people didn't survive. Mm -hmm. And she said, I've come to the conclusion that when you have a positive, compelling vision, it will help you get past any obstacle that you might have. It gives you a reason to live, gives you a reason to be sober. And so a lot of people, when they're in their, their addiction, they don't see the possibility of what it would look like. And that's why it's so important to create a vision and believe it's possible and then turn it into goals <laughs> and then do all the affirmations of visualization, deal with the trauma that created it in the first place, like my wife's husband's or father's suicide. You know, my trauma 
which I got to deal with in my ayahuasca journey was that my mother, when I was young, married to my dad, who was in his 24, my mom's 20, really young. He's in the military, totally numbed out his emotions because his parents were macho, if you will. Mm -hmm. And when I would cry as a child, as a baby, it would re-stimulate his uncried tears. Mm -hmm. And so he would say, get this child out of here, put him in the car. He can come back in when he stops crying. Mm -hmm. And you come back in because he wanted her. So my mom would put me in the car and there I'd be as a, as a baby crying, no one responding to my cries, wet diaper, hungry, God knows what, maybe I had an ant bite me or something. Nobody responded. So what I do, I gave up crying. Hmm. What's the use? No one responds. So that was a big piece of my life that shut down part of my emotions for a long, long time. I had other emotions available to me, but literally I had a night of literally like lockjaw before I could let myself cry. Yeah. And now I'm in a much better space. My wife would tell you I'm much more available emotionally than I was before that. You just made me realize uh, I've been on this planet, well, it's been 13 years since I read your book, but you just made me realize that Alan Carr's easy way to control alcohol helped me to quit alcohol, but the success principles helped me to stay quit. I just realized, yeah. I just realized that. Had I not picked up your book, and, and learned how to start being and to start changing my life and to quit my job and to, you know, travel around the world, interviewing poker players and creating this business. Who knows where it would have been? Um, Jack Canfield, uh, The 30 Day Solution, uh, Success Principles. No exaggeration to say they're lifesavers. I've really appreciated you being on the call and sharing your wisdom with us. And uh, on a personal note, it's been a real kind of joy for me because uh, it's been lovely to meet you. Let me, let me hold this cover up. I want people to get to see it. So when you see it in a bookstore, you'll recognize it. Yeah, yeah. Or you can go on amazon.com. It literally is, you know, we said a lot of people are never going to go to rehab. A lot of people are never going to hire an alcohol sobriety coach, psychologist, whatever. And we wanted to put something between the covers of a book that would do that. And if you go to amazon.com and you read the reviews, you'll see that literally hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and maybe thousands, I don't know how many reviews are there anymore, talk about how effective it's been in their life. Mm. So I really want to encourage people to do that. And if you want, go to jackcanfield.com, get on my website, get on my mailing list. And we have, a, I do a lot of free trainings online. I've, uh, noticed, I I've noticed you're increasing your presence on uh, YouTube. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And I do this thing, I just did one this morning with a group of writers, but about every three months, I advertise that I'm doing a free process where I take people back and you, you identify a limiting belief that is still running your life, how to replace that belief, and then, you know, release it and replace it. And so it's a process that takes you back into your childhood. It's about a 20 minute process. And I did it in January for about a thousand people. I did three of them in January for a thousand people on each call. Mm. It's just my way of giving service to the world at a time you know, we're in this COVID-19 reality as we record this. And um, so many people are living in fear. They're living in um, not going for what they want because of the limiting beliefs and fears they have. And so I said, I can do what I do, making enough money, sold enough books. I want to give something away to people that doesn't cost anything that allows them to uh, take the next step. Yeah, check that out. We will have a specific podcast page for this episode. It'll have a a little workbook there that we'll create and all the links in the show notes so you can get access to Jack's books and all his work. Jack Canfield, it's been a true pleasure. Thanks for joining us at the 1000 Day Soul Podcast. Thanks, Lee. Appreciate it.